Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome back to the tank, Mark McQueen, to cover the headlines making news in and around the tech and venture capital ecosystem. But before we get started today, as our listeners probably know by now, the team at Ripple is always focused on helping our founders and portfolio companies find the best partners to work with within the tech and venture capital ecosystem. And that is why we are so excited to announce our partnership with the incredible team at Tories LLP. When it comes to legal support and advice, the team at Tories is the best in class. Tories is a story Canadian law firm with offices in Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Halifax, and New York City. And Tories has been around since its founding in 1941. They have always worked closely with players across the emerging startup ecosystem in all aspects of the creation, acquisition, and commercialization of businesses. They help founders determine when and how much to fundraise, how to achieve the right economic structure, how to think about board and control issues, and how to successfully navigate different stages of growth. They are also advisors to VC funds, strategic investors, private equity funds, and other institutional investors on fund formation and shareholder arrangements to buyouts and other exits. In fact, Tories recently acted as counsel to Mavericks Private Equity on the transformative 260 million MyoVision Technologies growth funding round with an advisory team that included Danny Asif, Konata Lake, and Max Schwartz label on that investment. So whether you are negotiating a new business arrangement or developing a new service offering, Tories helps clients seize new opportunities and build creative market-leading business models in this fast-paced world we live in every day. So visit Tories.com to learn more. Mark, coming off of such a great review from your podcast with us the other week, so many listeners wrote us saying that was one of the best podcasts we ever recorded, that we had to have you back to do our weekly news rundown. Not, not true, I'm sure. But. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course it's not true. But I want to kick things off because you are someone who obviously follows a lot of things that happens in business, in tech, and obviously politics. And something that overlaps perfectly with the city that you and I live in, Toronto, is at the epicenter of politics and tech, which is the Collision Conference that's coming to Toronto later this month, where it's one of Canada's biggest gatherings of the tech community, and also something that brings people from around North America and the rest of the world. You know, as most of our listeners know, Collision has been hosted in Toronto for the past few years uh, and brings so many big names in technology from the Valley, from, you know, big cities like New York and Boston and Miami. However, it's been written about in the news lately, and maybe not the most positive light, uh, as the the conference organizers have been uh, pitching the city to bring more capital to their uh, funding budget, you know, BetaKit released an investigative report that mentions Collision's previous funding of six and a half million Canadian per year from various Toronto tourism organizations are now looking for over fifteen million a year for the next three years to continue to host the project. So, first off, you know, what have been your thoughts of the conference, the pros and cons, and do you think the city? should keep funding the conference that has been created by everyone else to enjoy? I, I've been once. Uh, and obviously with COVID, it's, uh, I can't tell you how many times it's been in person, but I've been once and I wanted to check it out. It, just that simple. And I uh, hadn't been anywhere else in the world before to it. And I've been to many conferences and CES in Las Vegas with Rick Siegel uh, back when he's doing venture at uh, Albright. And he was convinced I had to go and, and work there. And so I, and I've been to Europe to uh, some venture conferences, UK, but, um, and lots in the US and Canada. So the question is for the city and our industry and the country uh, and the taxpayer, that cauldron of topics that you kind of are linking together, which I think is fair. What are you trying to accomplish? You know, is the goal to fill hotel rooms? 
and restaurants and expose a city to people who otherwise may never have come and hope that they will bring their families later or that they might you know, open a business or a branch office of their fund or company someday in Toronto. And they would never come from South Africa or from Madrid, but for the conference and, and that unlocks something. So I don't, uh, I'm not an industry expert on, on that kind of uh, uh, topic, but I do know as a tourism uh, thing, this seems, uh, you know, penny for pound, interesting way to spend your money when so many Americans can drive Toronto from, uh, you know, from Michigan and New York and Massachusetts and Vermont and spend their very, uh, very efficient U.S. dollars in Toronto and do way better, I think, in the stores and whatnot. And somebody flies in for 30 hours and meets some people and leaves again. So uh, as a tourism thing, seems like a silly uh, excuse, but that's what the budget is. So you go and get it for that budget. You know, you have to remember that these events are someone's business, right? Um, these aren't uh, public service things someone's doing. They're trying to make money at this. It's their livelihood. And the more they can charge for sponsorships and the more they can charge per ticket and the more they can save on the uh, cost of the uh, Coliseum or something, you know, the event space, it's their profit. And that goes in their pocket. And there's nothing wrong with that. But this isn't some kind of church, you know, where, uh, you know, you make donations and that flows into the good works and feeding people in Africa. That's not what's happening. The, the first conference I went to, it looked like it was for big companies. It looked like it was a great chance for global and domestic large companies to spend a million dollars, a million and a half dollars on their setup. Right. And the f more flashy it was and interesting and leading edge and cheerful young people and all with beautiful golf shirts and whatnot and chachkas and swag. That was the goal. Right. It was a branding exercise for Bank X, for Insurance Company Y, for, you know, global tech branch plant Z. And then if you were a younger, newer company entrepreneur, you could maybe scurry around and hope to meet some people and six or eight thousand people who were transiting through there and, 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 you know, get some business cards as you would at any other conference CS or something, you know, is that good to have in Toronto? Sure. Is that more important to the venture space and entrepreneurs and seed and series A funding than the creative destruction lab? Uh, I think when it works, no, $6 million, $50 million, uh, all sounds like a lot of money. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I touched on a lot of good points. I think from a tourism perspective, I mean, the cost of hotel rooms are astronomical and it definitely has very, been very hard for a lot of people to continue coming back to the city because of that. So I definitely think there's a lot of money that is spent here during the time. You know, we host a, an event. A lot of VCs uh, and people in the ecosystem host their own private offshoot events that ride the coattails of Collision, which is great. Which is a great idea. It's efficient. CBC uh, is doing that themselves. I know excuse me, uh, they're doing themselves this, this month. Um, as an excuse, people to come in and bring people together in an agreed upon window. Uh, it's perfect. Is that something that the taxpayers of Toronto or Ontario need to put up that kind of money for? The, the tourism should not be for, for fitting the bill here. The economic and business development organization should, because I do think that getting people from the outskirts of Toronto or cities across Canada to come here and meet with investors from the Valley, from New York and Boston is really freaking hard to do. And for our founders who are 
probably on the very early stages of just getting their first institutional round of funding, to have any type of connection with global investors is a huge win for our economy and for our entrepreneurs. So I think there is a reason to continue to have it here, but paying $40 million to continue to have it here is just a non-starter for a lot of people. And I agree with that. So we need to figure out a way to bring the global audience, because let's face it, the global audience is not coming to Startup Fest. They're not coming to Elevate. They're not coming to SAS North. They're not coming to Invest Canada. They're just not attracting CVC. They're not attracting that. And so this is the only conference that can bring a global community together uh, at a time of the year where people want to be in Toronto, besides the fires and stuff happening and the smoke, to be able to spend a week here and uh, intersect with so many different people from the business community. Yeah, let's just talk a bit about the money because uh, the bean counters who we've all worked with in our lives uh, will always want to tackle the marketing budget first, right? If we need to tighten our belts for some reason, because you got to make a quarter or the economy isn't great, people always want to cut back on marketing and, and, you know, easy to do versus laying off people. Um, But I, in this context, federal government, provincial government, municipal government, whoever it is, who is a group uh, spending that money, our tax our tax dollars on these kinds of things. You know, I would just ask you to answer the question, if not this, what would we do with the $40 million? Because the alternative is that nothing gets spent on anything of this nature and our sector and our country is worse off as a result. Um, You know, the British uh, trade ministry goes to U.S. commerces and they are a platinum sponsor. They uh, sponsor events in U.S. states, Atlanta, Virginia, what have you, Boston, advertising Britain as a place to go and and, and grow your company and, and raise capital or vice versa. So the Canadian government doesn't do that, right? We have 65 trade commissioners in the United States who have innovation in their business plan or business card. You know, how many of those 65 people in a given year are moving the needle for Canadian entrepreneurs? EDC does what it does, of course, and helping big and medium-sized small companies sell abroad. But, um, you know, a lot of money goes into our sector in theory, but in practice, I'm just never sure how much of it is spent wisely or those investments bear the fruit that the folks who are cutting those checks, who are hiring those people, who are committing those FTEs in Tampa and places like Miami or Buffalo or Atlanta and what have you, um, if it's working, actually. So, if you didn't spend this money on collision, what, what is your idea, right? And, and that's, I think, the challenge, because unless some entrepreneur shows up with an idea about how to spend your money, you know, governments by nature aren't very good at uh, dreaming things up out of thin air. So, and I don't take away anything from the journals who've done a good job uh, researching these topics and getting to the bottom of some pretty tough issues, perhaps. But as a sector, you know, what, what do we want instead? And if we have an answer to that question, let's go to, uh, I said, let's go to Minister of Finance or Economic Development in, in Toronto or the mayor's office and uh, and talk about, you know, what it is we think they could do better with those same dollars. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you bring up another uh, interesting topic that I wasn't planning on talking about, but I would love to hear your thoughts, uh, was on the BDC report on how their dollars were delivering returns for taxpayers and and the government. There were some people that said private capital has done much better than government capital. And other people said, well, hold on a second. It's not fair to judge government capital the same as private capital because their decisions to support 
businesses and entrepreneurs are not necessarily uh, the same decisions that a private capitalist investor makes as well. If you're a top company that is able to take capital from anywhere, especially some of the best investors in the world, how does you know someone like BDC even get a shot at investing in those companies? Therefore, how do they get those thousand X returns? So I, I assume you saw the report and all the conversations happening online about it. Do you have any thoughts on this? You touched on two things, which in my mind are related, but but you could think about them separately. The first thing is, what is BDC's role in sectors of the economy, uh, whether it's female entrepreneurs or clean tech or deep tech or something that may attract less capital than BIPOC than other sectors? And if that is a role for the crown and they don't make as much money at that as they could have had they done something more mainstream, traditionally mainstream, is it fair? Right. I think that was your rhetorical question there. I agree. You know, if we're trying to stimulate uh, a generation of entrepreneurs, whether by race or by gender or by sector, that's tougher, your returns are probably going to be lower. I mean, I, I guess intuitively. So separate that part of the strategy from the other point you just made, which is if an entrepreneur or a Series C deal can get money from Insider, from anybody in the world, why would they take it from the government? First of all, why is the government there at all? I mean, as a strategy, the taxpayer should not be competing with private capital on valuation, on terms, on structure, on board rights, on rofers, on, on anything. So if Insight or JMI or uh, any Inovia Growth, uh, whoever it is with a, with a strategy that suits that entrepreneur's goals and need for capital and mandate, business plan, whatever, BC shouldn't be there, right? It should be uh, following its act from 1995 or something and, uh, and uh, go where the capital is needed, not where it's not needed. Well, I think if, if, if a company can get capital- no, I, don't, I don't think they've done that. I, I, think that, I think that they've just tried, as you see from that IT strategy that ludicrously spun out of BDC a few years ago for reasons that I don't know why, because every other strategy has stayed inside the building. I don't know why they would spin out just one, two third parties. What is the role? And the role is to do stuff that's harder. And once it gets to the point where a B round has four term sheets and uh, well, then they shouldn't be there. Anyway. That doesn't mean they can't follow if they were in the seat, if they were in the A, it's their absolute right and, and probably obligation to follow for a bunch of good reasons. Um, and if that gets them return, well, then all the better. But you know, that, it does beg the question, you know, what is their role? And if their role is being followed in theory where the gap exists, they talk about funding gaps well, then maybe the returns may lower. You know, the last five or 15 years, if anybody is convinced they've only funded gaps, I certainly am not. It is fair to say, you know, you went after these great deals, you put money in Perry Passu with Georgian and, and, and whatnot, your returns are still below others. Yeah. And why is that? And to be accountable, as, as any GP is held accountable by their LPs in, in, in the normal world that you and I live in. That's what I was going to say. Like, what is the benchmark? What's the benchmark for them to be held accountable to, right? If they're going to be backstopping deals that are not getting external funding from private capital because they're filling that gap, well, 
okay, their returns are going to probably be lower unless they obviously hit it out of the park on something that everyone else missed on. But if they're not going to be judged like a private fund manager like I am, because that's not the game that they're being told to play by the government, then what is the benchmark? What should they be held accountable towards? And let's just make that public. I don't have a problem with them betting on the harder things, but just like you know, I'm judged on the Cambridge uh, report numbers on how I'm going, doing as a fund manager, there's a scorecard, right? And we need to be all accountable by that scorecard. And some people fudge their numbers and we're not going to get into that here. But if they're going to be held accountable, let's just see what the numbers are. But I agree with you, like as a government entity, they should be filling the gap and they should be helping harder projects get off the ground. And maybe private capital is just not willing to do that in the early days. And maybe that brings them massive returns because they were first to step up to bat. But um, I just think there's a little bit of ambiguity. But hey, like we see a lot of public sort of funded vehicles that spin out, you know, Mars IAF spun out to become a a new fund graphite. I think that happens uh, over the course of just people's careers saying, look, I've I've done my time helping support a a nonprofit. Now it's time to roll it into a private uh, structure. And that's actually, you know, that's a great way of looking at it. Make stand up ventures. Right. Um, for example, Michelle um, Bain, I mean, they spun out and, and and you're able to track their returns and it did draw, you know, uh, I committed through CBC to those two funds. I mean, it, it you can do it. Uh, it's not a bad thing to spin out, but it has to be intentional and it has to be clear to the sector and the taxpayers. Why is that happening? That's and exactly it. Yeah. And, and, and the drawbacks. So one thing you mentioned, you know, CIBC is where you spent a, a good portion of your time. You obviously saw a lot of changes in the banking industry. We've been seeing a lot of change happening in sort of the venture debt side and also on the credit funding side available for small businesses and startups. Canada has been notorious for not being so supportive of helping um private small businesses get access to credit lines and credit cards and things like that. We've seen companies pop up like Float to try and become supportive of small businesses here. Uh, We've seen other companies like Pluto and Wave get into that space, but a lot of them still have that prepaid credit card aspect. Not a lot of them are offering the sort of $50,000, dollars a month credit lines that you see uh, companies in the US offering like Brex and Ramp or whatever. But now as the SVB debacle has sort of rippled through the ecosystem, it's becoming harder and harder, and we're seeing other players maybe pop their head up. And we saw fintech giant Stripe putting their hand up to say they're going to get into the credit game by offering companies the ability to spend money, but again, on these pre-funded accounts. Why is it, in your opinion, that it's so hard for small businesses to still get access to traditional business credit card lines uh, from the traditional banks and obviously why the incumbents, like Afloat, can even get access to offering those services? What is the credit profile of the borrower? You've got a Visa or an Amex or a MasterCard in your wallet. Uh, it's got a limit. It's 5000 It's 25000 say $5,000. It is what it is based upon your own credit score and your history and whether or not you're a homeowner and whether or not you're married and how many years have been at the same address and you've got a job and what the income is and your credit score and all those things. That's how you got that $3,000 line of credit. And, uh, the business shows up at that same institution and says, okay, we don't have any of those things. We're new. Uh, we've got half a million dollars in the bank uh, with you, Bank XYZ, and we need a $2,000 visa card for corporate uh, travel and hotels and, and what have you to pay for the Google AdWords or something. Yeah, well, what's your credit rate? Well, I don't have one because it's a new business. Well, all right. Of course, that's hard, right? So all these companies 
do is they, in my mind anyway, then the day they, they can pretend all they want that they're sizing up the quality of your company and the revenue, but they really are looking at what's in the bank and what your burn is. Rex, whoever it is, Expensify, lots of firms are around the topic and they're trying to be helpful, but they're trying to be helpful in a way that is financially lucrative to them and a good credit call every single time. And, you know, I think the, the clear bank, clear co experience uh, is a great reminder that there are no new ways to lose money in our <laughs> sector other than giving capital to people who, who, go and try and do something and they lose it. Credit card, venture debt, pick the pick the angle you want and the quantum that you want. It's hard for me to feel badly, conscious for sure, but feel badly if if a, a business with half a million dollars, the bank can't get a quarter million dollar credit card uh, line. Well, in proportion to your assets, it's just not a good credit risk. And if you do 100 of those deals remotely at Rex or Float or whoever it is, um, you're going to lose a lot of money and there's nowhere to lay that off, right? That money had to come from somewhere. You, 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 you at Brex or bank or third party player at Spencify, you put equity into that, right? And someone else lost it. And unless that's your um, business fame, that's your raison d'etre lending club. And there's, there's no different, there's no end of examples of ways people have tried to lend to the SME community. Credit cards is just a tool that's uh, necessary for the livelihood of companies. Absolutely. It's hard enough because capital is tighter. Totally. But I think that like there's other ways besides just looking at assets to be able to give people's uh, the ability to build up credit profiles, even if their business is new, right? Right. Enterprise value. Right. Enterprise value is what I would say in venture debt landscape, which with a business with 500 revenue, absolutely. A business with $4,000 revenue, EV is really tough to determine. Yep. Fair enough. Well, hopefully we'll see it change again. You know, pre-funded accounts are not the same as traditional business credit card lines. Uh, and I think we need to find ways to open up ways to get access to that. Well, you know, the BDC has a $40 billion balance sheet. It's a great point. Why has that not happened? Well, they did look at these quarter million dollar notes that were unsecured based upon the entrepreneur's signature. They were non-recourse that upset the shred lenders and the small ticket venture debt people as they should, because they actually were in that. They were in those categories. Uh, you know, the government cash should not be doing credit cards. Obviously I was being a bit uh, tongue in cheek on that. Our sector, the financial services sector around this ecosystem has lots of capital. It's got lots of talent. It's a global business. If there is a good way to deploy capital and earn an appropriate return for your investors, People like me will find that, like have no fear of that. If it doesn't jibe with the needs of the entrepreneur who's got 10 staff and is burning in their seed round, that's a quantum issue, right? That's just how much can I get? Pre-funding, well, all you're saying is give me credit, which is a natural desire. But if that business is so new that it is not yet clear how credit worthy it is, how do you take an un, un unprefunded risk on that. It, it's and even that one company, you can't do that on a thousand. And if you don't do it a thousand, there's no business model to build a company providing it 
to that individual firm. Well, that's also another problem we have in this country. Just we don't have the population and uh, and the businesses to support a ability to, to take on those risks. Just like you know, we have so much cost spent on telecommunications cost for us uh, because we're subsidizing a large portion of the population who wouldn't pay to get it out to their you know. There's no like there's no U.S. player right now by the sounds of what you're telling me that is doing something that we wish we had in Canada. There was until they the SVB pulled out a lot of the capital from underneath them. But on, on the credit card point is what I mean. On the credit card, yeah. Jeeves was doing it. Jeeves was offering credit card limits to a bunch of players, and now their model's starting to change, and for good reason. Capital has become more expensive, uh, and other players like that. Yeah, I mean, if you could lay off your credit card exposure in bundles into uh, conduits a year and a half ago on Wall Street, and that market's closed, <laughs> guess what? Yeah. Right? It all comes back to how you can uh, cut up your uh, exposure and liabilities to a Wall Street uh, LBO market. How you fund it, what the return is, and, and what the risk premium has to be. And the risk premium, if cash negative companies were borrowing at 5% for a ludicrous extended period of time in the last five years, and it's now 10 or 15, well, we're back to normal. Yep, yep. No, totally. I mean, speaking of ludicrous times, uh, you recently wrote a piece about how the uh, liberal carbon tax numbers have continued to go up over time. And you think that there are better ways for us as Canadians and Canadian families who are obviously feeling the impacts of inflation to better spend money elsewhere on things like clean technology advancements and not on circular taxes. So can you please explain to our audience what is happening here? So I wrote a Substack. My new blog uh, is hosted on Substack. And I, I was trying to, as a conservative, figure out how we can tackle climate change. You know, one or number number one, number two issue in, in the public's mind in terms of threats to the country, in terms of obviously once you get through um, cost of living, uh, you know, it's in the top five. No, especially on a day, a day like today while we're recording and there's smoke from Quebec coming into our city and hard to breathe. No. There were forest fires 200 years ago, so I, I, I uh, but anyway, um, your point's well taken. The people believe these things are all connected, and therefore it's a very top of mind of the public when they go to vote, generationally in particular, folks under 30. And I've been trying to figure out what we do uh, to solve this as a policy issue as a country. Obviously, our contribution to CO2 was 1.5% or 2% of the global number. Um, you know, Panama and China are still building uh, coal plants so we can close ours, but they're building new ones. So that's a trade uh, that's not good. And the carbon tax, um, now that it's getting larger as a share of the price of fuel at the gas pump and propane for those folks who don't have natural gas delivered to their homes in rural parts of Canada, you're noticing it. And the fact that the current government uh, is very proud that they give, you know, hockey dads and soccer moms the money back you know you pay if you pay two thousand bucks in carbon tax at the pump we're to give it back to you through a rebate like that's not going to change behavior and if the goal of the carbon tax is to change behaviors and have people drive smaller cars or bike or take public transit or buy an ev or something if we give them the money back that we took there's no behavior change going to come and well corporates are refunded as so i've been trying to figure out what we can do about this and you know canada uh, gave the world insulin and Canada gave the world uh, the telephone, and the light bulb and the world's uh, first pacemaker and the first Ebola vaccine and the Blackberry and, and um, 
you know, the can arm. And, you know, we've got billions of dollars a year going into R&D on campuses and in labs and by federal and provincial scientists and a whole bunch of different areas. We're still acknowledged, uh, I think, to be doing poorly on commercialization. And, you know, we need, obviously, our moonshot needs to be bringing this generate, whether it's battery storage or carbon capture or something or several things all at once, use our country's resources, financial and otherwise intellectual, and deploy them into the sector and try and solve the climate change problem through technology. Because if we shut our economy and keep our oil in the ground, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and others are going to just in Russia, they're going to increase their production to backfill what we pull out of the market. So that's not going to solve anything. And if we stop contributing to CO2 as a country, Indonesia in the next 10 years is going to grow their population by the entire amount of Canada's population after 150 years plus in existence. So there's nothing we can do alone. And I get that it's a team of effort, but so long as other nations are building coal plants and Europe's obviously trying to deal with Russia and the war in Ukraine through uh, getting back into fossil burning that they were trying to get out of uh, only five or 10 years ago. So as a country, I, I, I think the best way to contribute to the world's challenge in this area is through technology. And whether you're a believer or not, that'll make you happy. Whether you're a, a person in venture space or not, that'll be happy. But if you think about the sliver of venture dollars in Canada, if this issue is top of mind for Canadians, and this issue is such an important public policy topic for the government uh, in Ottawa and also in, in Quebec City, why is clean tech the small sliver of our spend in Canada relative to software and, and other, other uh, technologies? It's uh, confusing, distressing, strange, and a missed opportunity. Well, let's just lay it out how confusing it is, because uh, in March, when the uh, annual budget came out, Ottawa planned to spend over $21 billion over five years on clean technology, with a large portion of it going to affecting the mining industry. However, only $500 million over 10 years from the Strategic Innovation Fund to support the development and application of clean technology. So $500 million over 10 years for Strategic Innovation Fund on clean technologies doesn't seem like a lot compared to the overall budget on supporting the mining industry. Why is it so small still? Two things. All that happens is that people in a government department sit down and they say, all right, what were the old programs? What were the old envelopes for those old programs? How can we recast those old programs to address the new topic? And the money that we used to spend on this, we're now going to kind of call it something else, but it's the same old thing. I had an interesting debate with uh, Logic journalist on Twitter, a constructive one about uh, the Ericsson grant that recently uh, to retrain some of their staff on 5G. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, that's something Jim Flair never would have done uh, when he was finance minister. And, uh, and he pointed out that uh, there was a program back 15 years ago um, that would have been used in that day for this kind of thing. It's now called something else, it's being deployed a bit differently, but in the end, it's the exact same. You, you can track the heritage uh, to back to Jim Flaherty. So, um, and I think point taken. So the uh, you know, answer to your question is that um, you've got your array of your programs and you try and tailor them to fit the current minister's needs, wants, and desires, and, uh, and you declare victory. 
but you actually never get to the point, which is what you're saying, which is you're, you're never really innovating. And I don't know how many industry ministers we've had since I joined the CDCA board uh, 15 years ago, but if we've had nine or 10 or 11, you know, whose fault is it that, that there's no, no one bearing down on some of these issues when there's that kind of turnover in these jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I got to get your thoughts on one topic. I see that you're wearing a Magna golf shirt. So I have to assume that you are a golfer of sorts. Uh, and the news that came out this week on the PGA taking the moral high ground and merging with Live Golf shocked everyone in the golf world and probably everyone in, in the business community as well. I mean, I have to ask your thoughts here with all those players who uh, accepted the banishment, like Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Bubba Watson, got paid millions to go overseas and play with Saudis uh, and take the, the the terrible you know money from over there in, in their opinion. How do they justify what happens now with the PGA and the Saudis merging into some unnamed commercial entity? I have my thoughts that I've heard that makes perfect sense, and it all comes back to who's actually funding the sponsors uh, for a lot of the PGA providers right now is probably coming from a lot of overseas money. But what are your thoughts on this and how does this make sense? Warren Buffett at the annual meeting recently spent a lot of time talking about morality from the business board standpoint and what the role is for a company on, on moral topics. And uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, I think, was the focus that, that he was peppered about. And it, they both talked about it, he and Sean Munger, uh, I think, at length. The Pandora's box that, that got opened when when the, the PGA Tour said, oh, gosh, we would never take money from XYZ Nation because of ABC reasons that relate to core fundamental values. And then the British journalists and others all pursued Phil Mickelson and 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 said, "Okay, tell me about how you feel about." And they would read, you know, transcripts from, you know, what uh, and uh, say, "How do you feel? You know, are you sport washing? Are you uh, are you uh, do you not care as blood money and on these kinds of things?" I'm quoting. And it was interesting to see their reactions. And some tried to parry with them, and some said, "You know, I'm just here to play golf." I guess there's two approaches is really the truth. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett says don't get involved in uh, political issues because half the country will hate you. Okay? If you're in favor of certain topics in the U.S., half the country will hate you. And if you're against and you publicly say so, half the country will hate you. And your job is to sell candy to both. And if you – I don't want to upset the one and not sell candy – and the Disney, um, obviously the Disney uh, DeSantis uh, struggle, uh, very public struggle, is a good example of that in the last number of months. And this, I think it's all the same topic. And the PGA, obviously, by saying we would never countenance such a relationship, went down a path that they clearly wasn't Warren Buffett's advice. And now they discovered that, geez, we'd all be a lot richer if we merged together, the live uh, golf I had heard was um, cutting staff, caddies no longer flying business class, they were flying economy and people were being asked to take pay cuts and things because the business wasn't going that great already somehow. And, you know, if you thought that the public investment fund had a bottomless checkbook, I think people found really quickly that they didn't. Ian Fraser is a great Canadian um, a golf icon and uh, he did a, interesting um, video yesterday about this topic and point he made is Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, Hideki gave up a billion and a half dollars by 
staying on the side of morality. And now it turns out that that was not just a choice they made. It was a flawed choice because they wound up giving up a billion and a half dollars, which they could have gone and, you know, invested in solving poverty in Africa. Instead, uh, they stuck with the PGA's moral uh, um, stance to find out, you know, like everybody else did on the tour, the players, uh, without any involvement at all in the discussions, that that, that was all um, just to forget about that. You can't run a company like that, right? You couldn't do that in your office uh, with your team. You can't do that with your portfolio companies. And uh, it really shines a light on this really difficult topic, which I don't have an answer to, which is how do you bring spirited uh, topic into a corporate environment. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Michael Jordan said it best, Republicans buy shoes too. Uh, Canada, Canada sells soya beans, you know, Canada sells soya beans to China because we have farmers who need to sell their soya beans to uh, make a living. The problem of Canada has passed a motion condemning the Chinese government for human rights violations. Well, I guess we could subsidize those farmers and say, no, 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 don't sell your soybeans. We're going to show China who's, you know, we have, there's meat to our uh, point here and we're going to not do business with them. And yet we don't do that. Right. So it's hard to blame the PGA, I suppose, in some ways uh, for what they're kicking it too, when we take the moral high ground on China, but we certainly notice when they don't buy our beef and, and our soybeans, for example. So, Tough topics, and uh, any CEO, any founder who doesn't notice uh, the careful about that moral stance you take, because six or 12 or 18 months later, when you said, I'll never sell a Salesforce, and then Salesforce offers you 30 times revenue, you go, well, you know what? Uh, 30 times revenue is a lot better than five, which is what I thought they'd offer when I said that. So you, know, you can you can draw uh, parallels in each entrepreneur's and founder's life, and um, careful about being dogmatic. Yep, absolutely. I was just saying, as Michael Jordan says, Republicans buy shoes as well. Uh, and so you always want to make sure that you understand how intertwined every decision you make is, especially in a globalized world where so many different people have different things at stake here. I think PGA opened up a can of worms when they took that moral high ground and didn't realize the different layers of the cake that they were exposing themselves to that supported their business here, while also maybe took the wrong stance on what some players were choosing to do for their careers as independent contractors that ended up, you know, coming full circle while they went out and acquired this. They were trying to shame people for making life choice. You know, Dustin Johnson in his own simplistic way said, I work less, get paid more, see my family more. Sounds pretty good to me. For the sponsors who fired Dustin Johnson for making this move to the tour because they thought they had to do that to show uh, the PGA they were on the right team, a lot of the golf equipment manufacturers didn't fire. Nike, you know, Brooks Kepka still had a Nike thing on his shirt there when he won his last major. So certain groups fired these people. Other groups, Adidas, Nike, uh, Taylor Mayer, didn't, didn't. And that also is interesting to me. Like, why does a bank fire one player, but the golf equipment company doesn't fire their plane? That plane, doing the same thing, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's kind of unfortunate that we've got the RBC Canadian Open happening this weekend, but I feel like it's going to be overshadowed by a lot of this news here. And so it won't get the, the shine light that it deserves. But thanks so much for joining us in the tank today, Mark, to go through the news rundown. Mark McQueen, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 